Hello and happy Monday and thank you so much for joining me. My name is Madam Butterfly and you are listening to Frequency Bay. Thanks so much for joining me today. I am officially on part four, I believe. Part four and or part five. Yeah, part four. Part four is um, eight people sipping wine and cat- kettling. I'm on part four of Century of the Self, and um, we're pretty much going to get straight into it. Uh, we're coming off of one topic and heading into another. This is, I believe they're starting right around the um, the Reagan era after he was uh, finished his, his last uh, year in office back in the day. Um and afterwards, I believe it was President Clinton. President Clinton will be discussed also in this segment. And, um, yeah, I'm not going to hold you guys. I'm going to get straight into this. So uh, thank you so much for joining me today. You're moving through a world in which everything is possible and nothing, nothing is beyond you. This is the story of the rise of an idea. It has come to dominate our society. It is the belief that the satisfaction of individual feelings and desires is our highest priority. Today we're going to tell you how to get whatever you want. I wanted to live a different life that wasn't available to me in the image I was born. Previous episodes have shown how this rise of the self was fostered and promoted by business. They had used the ideas of Sigmund Freud to develop techniques to read the inner desires of individuals and then fulfill them with products. This final episode is about how that idea took over politics. It tells the story of how politicians on the left, in both America and Britain, turned to these techniques to regain power. They believed that they were creating a new and better form of democracy, one that truly responded to the inner feelings of individuals. But what the politicians didn't realize was that the aim of those who had originally created these techniques had not been to liberate the people, but to develop a new way of controlling them in an age of mass democracy. way back in the America of the 1920s with one man. He was called Edward Bernays, the nephew of Sigmund Freud. Bernays had been one of the inventors of the profession of public relations, and he was fascinated by his uncle's theory that human behavior was driven by unconscious sexual and aggressive drives. Many of Bernays' clients were large American corporations, and he was the first person to show them how they could sell many more products they linked them through images and symbols to those unconscious desires that Freud had identified. The strategy he offered them was that people could now look at the goods that were emerging within the society and not merely view those goods as things that they needed in order to deal with some specific material want, but also as goods which would stroke and respond to deep emotional yearnings. 
you know, how this bar of soap or this bag of flour will make you a happier, more successful, more sexually appealing, less fearful person. Somebody to be admired rather than reviled. The powerful people in that world are those people who are capable of reading the public mind and giving the public uh, what it wants in those terms. And Bernays was at the heart of it. Bernays was the guy who was the foremost articulator of the theories which were driving this new system. By the 1980s, Bernays' ideas had come of age. A vast industry had grown up in America, devoted to reading the inner desires of consumers. At its heart was the technique of the focus group. Previous episodes have shown how the focus group was invented by psychoanalysts employed by U.S. corporations. The aim was to allow consumers to express their inner feelings and needs, just as patients did in psychoanalysis. The information was then used to promote and design new products that would fulfill those desires. And Edward Bernays, who was now nearly a hundred years old, was celebrated as the founding father of this marketing world. Hi, Doctor. Good to see you. Come on up over here. There you go. Doctor, what, uh, tell me again what the doctor is. What are we dealing with? Well, You're the father of uh, public relations. What we're dealing with, really, is the concept that people will believe me more if you call me doctor. Oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> so, that's a good idea. And Bernays' ideas and techniques were also about to conquer Britain in the 1980s. Unlike America, the ruling elites in Britain had always distrusted the idea of pandering to the masses. It was epitomized by the patrician elite who ran the BBC. Even as late as the 60s, popular programs were referred to as ground bait. Their real job was to lure the viewers into watching the more serious programs the elite knew was good for them. And market research reflected this attitude. Individuals were observed and classified by market researchers according to their social class, from A through C2, D and E. They might be C2. Yes, I think uh, by the, the way they're carrying their luggage. Oh, yes, no taxi. taxi. No taxi and all stuffed in, in the bags yes. like that. I think the lady possibly sets her own hair, which is always yes. an indication. Yes, children are nice to dress. Yes, they are. Uh, yes. Probably uh, a skilled uh, worker. A skilled, some, yes. Some yes, a skilled worker, I, I would think say so. so. Yes, I a would say so. A apprenticeship or done some That's quali qualifying yes. We agree then. Yes, we C2? think C2. We think so, yes. When people were asked their opinion about both products and politics, they were selected by social class and asked only strictly factual questions about what they thought. Leaving your own party sympathies on one side, who do you think will win this forthcoming uh, election? Labour. Labour? And tell me which you prefer. Which party do you think you'll be voting for? This time, this Liberals. Time you'll be voting for the Liberals. Who do you think will be second? Conservative. This one. Thank you. The idea that one might ask people what they themselves felt and desired, and then give it to them, was seen as alien to the ruling elites, which would challenge their belief that they knew what was best for the public. There's evidence uh, in other countries, in the United States, for example, 
where Polson had been used before elections to interpret the mood of the public, and then you uh, give people uh, more what they want to have and less what they ought to have. But again, you, this could be alleged to be more democratic. I don't know. It's very dangerous ground, I think, though, when polls are used uh, in that way. But then, in the economic crisis of the mid-70s, British industry was forced to begin to pay attention to the inner feelings of consumers. As the recession deepened, consumer spending fell dramatically, and the advertisers insisted that the only way for companies to survive was to make their advertising more effective. And to do this, they would have to delve into people's underlying psychological motives for purchasing. The advertising industry started to bring in Americans to run focus groups with British housewives. Everyone is a unique person, and even though you're a group of 10 today, we don't want a group opinion, and we want to know your ideas and your thoughts, no matter how crazy it might be. Please let your imagination run wild, because that's how very crazy things like instant coffee got born. Now, can we get somebody, this lady, to be a kitchen sink? And kitchen sink, how do you feel with these things that are being used to clean you up? Well, I've got to feel clean. I've got to be kept clean. I feel that. I should hate it if I was all greasy, so I've got to be easy to clean. Okay. Now, the housewife, this lady, what would you use to clean your kitchen sink? Um, a scouring powder. Oh. Of course, a cloth to apply the things on. And plenty of water. Now, how do you feel as you're doing this chore? Um, satisfied. Well satisfied when I have done it, yes. I'm doing my duty. I feel it's a job well done. The consumers were encouraged to play at being products, from household cleaners to car seat belts. The aim was not to talk rationally, but to act out and reveal their inner emotional relationship to products. <laughs> Which firmly and unmistakably underlines... And then a politician emerged who also believed that people should be allowed to express themselves. Instead of being controlled by the state, the individual should become the central focus of society. Some socialists seem to believe that people should be numbers in a state computer. We believe they should be individuals. We're all unequal. No one, thank heavens, is quite like anyone else, however much the socialists may pretend otherwise. And we believe that everyone has the right to be unequal. But to us, every human being is equally important. A man's right to work as he will, to spend what he earns, to own property, to have the state as servant and not as master, they are the essence of a free economy. And on that freedom, all our other freedoms depend. Mrs. Thatcher's vision was of a society in which the wants and desires of millions of individuals would be satisfied through the free market. This, she believed, would be the engine to regenerate Britain. And with her ascent of power, the advertising and marketing industries flourished. Their task was to find out what the British people really wanted and then sell it to them. In this new climate, the focus group flourished. And those who ran them borrowed from the techniques of psychotherapy to delve ever deeper into people's feelings about products. 
trying to understand how people feel about brands, how they relate to brands, that is to say, what the brand's personality is as far as consumers are concerned. And there are a number of techniques which are very, very helpful for uh, getting to that, uh, to that understanding. The consumer is given crayons to doodle, to express their feelings, to go inside their own head, pull out their feelings, and somehow get them onto paper. And these are ordinary drinkers uh, expressing their feelings about drinking Guinness. Here you see a rich, very female aspect of Guinness. So if you were describing a woman who somehow, to you, had that character, what sort of person is it? Paula Yates she used to lay in bed, surrounded with magazines, and chocolates like a 50s starlet. Out of this research, the marketeers began to detect a new individualism. In particular, among those who had voted Conservative for the first time in 1979. They no longer wanted to be seen as part of social classes, but to express themselves. And crucial to this were the products they chose to buy. We identified that there was this trend towards what might be called individualism, where people wanted to still be part of a crowd, but to express themselves as individuals within it, to have their own personalities, to be, I suppose, their own men. I didn't want to be the same as everybody else. I wanted it to be little bit different, a little bit individual. It's quite individual upstairs. It's not remarkable, but I think it's quite individual. It is expensive. It's Italian. It's Italian. It's expensive. It's good quality. We a little bit set, different. Yeah, we want to set our own standards so nobody else has got what we've got. We just didn't want it. Be the else. same as everybody we else. We just want to be different. Business responded eagerly to this new individualism. And it soon became one of the main forces driving the growing consumer boom in Britain. Using the data from the focus groups, manufacturers created new ranges of products that allowed people to express their individuality. Business also recategorized people. They were no longer divided by social class, but by their inner psychological needs. If the primary need is security and belonging, we call the groups mainstreamers. Um, if it's status and the esteem of others, then it's aspirers. If it's control, it's succeeders, and if it's self-esteem, it's reformers. And this new marketing culture began to take over the institutions previously dominated by a patrician elite, in particular the world of journalism. The assault was led by the profession of public relations. In the past, PR had been seen as seedy and corrupt, but now it became a glamorous business, promoting products and celebrities. One of the rising stars was another member of the Freud family, Matthew Freud, the son of the Liberal MP, Clement. What Freud and other PRs realised was that they could use their celebrities as levers to infiltrate advertising into the editorial content of newspapers. The newspapers were offered exclusive interviews with celebrities, but only if they also agreed to mention products made by Freud's corporate clients, in terms dictated by the company. What happened with Freud's was that you effectively got some kind of product placement or even product, the manufacturers of the product got some degree of control over how their products would appear in print. 
So if, for example, you did want to write about Caprice's uh, passion for stuffed crust pizza, you would sign a contract which guaranteed that you would mention the firm Pizza Hut uh, in at least twice in certain positions in the introductory paragraph of, of, of the article. You would agree to run the Pizza Hut logo at such and such a size in such and such a place. And of course, you would agree to run the enclosed pictures of Caprice eating her stuffed crust pizza. There was no choice about how you would run this article as you were effectively told how to run the article in the press. By Freud. By Freud. It's a rise of the corporate culture and the rise of, of business. To traditional journalists, this infiltration of advertising into the editorial pages was a corruption of their profession. But to Mrs. Thatcher's allies, like Rupert Murdoch, who owned The Sun and The Times, it was part of a democratic revolution against an arrogant elite who had too long ignored the feelings of the masses. They hate to see someone communicating with the masses. They feel that newspapers, the written word, is not for the masses. That should be left to television, or perhaps to nobody. I'm very proud of the sun. And the sun was not represented tonight in your film. You just took page three, which everyone seems so fascinated with. About page one, page two, every other page of the paper. Uh, this typical piece of slanting and elitism by the BBC, who, after all, in order to get viewers for this program, put on a very sexy episode of Star Trek, just, which I was watching out in the room there. Oh, I don't think they put it on to get us viewers. I think we just are lucky to they follow. They try to carry viewers into these show programs. You, you, you know how it's done. By the late 80s, Mrs. Thatcher and her allies in advertising and the media had brought the desires of the individual to the centre of society. As last week's episode showed, it was the same transformation that President Reagan had brought about in America. Both politicians had encouraged business to take over from government the role of fulfilling the needs of the people. In the process, consumers were encouraged to see the satisfaction of their desires as the overriding priority. To Thatcher and Reagan, this was a new and better form of democracy. But to their opponents in the parties of the left, they had summoned up the most selfish and greedy aspects of human nature. Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher both embraced an economic philosophy that says the unit of judgment was not only the individual, but it was the individual's personal satisfaction, the individual's own unique happiness and well-being. It was, in a sense, the triumph of regarding individuals as purely emotional beings who have needs and wants and desires that need to be satisfied and can be satisfied unconsciously. It goes way back to the early part of the 20th century, to Freud, to notions of the unconscious, um, the assumptions that we are, uh, in terms of our rational minds, we're little corks bobbing around on this great sea of hopes and fears and, and desires of which we are only dimly aware. And that the role of a marketer, or the role of somebody selling something, including a politician, is to appeal to this great swamp of, of desire, of unconscious desire. The left believed the opposite, that the way to create a better society was not to treat people as emotional, isolated individuals, but to persuade them to realize that they had common interests with others to help them rise above their individual feelings and fears. 
Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Nameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror, which paralyzes needed efforts to convert retreat into advance. This idea had flourished in America in the Depression of the 1930s. President Roosevelt, faced with the chaos caused by the Wall Street crash, encouraged Americans to join together in trades unions, to set up consumer groups, and to pay for a welfare system for those trapped in poverty. His aim was to create a collective awareness which would become a powerful weapon against the unfettered power of capitalism which had caused the crisis. That idea had driven the Democratic Party for 50 years. But now, Roosevelt's inheritors railed vainly against the effects of the self-interest encouraged by President Reagan. There is despair, Mr. President, in the faces that you don't see. Maybe, Mr. President, if you stopped in at a shelter in Chicago and spoke to the homeless there. Maybe, Mr. President, if you asked a woman who had been denied the help she needed to feed her children because you said you needed the money for a tax break for a millionaire or for a missile we couldn't afford to use. The worst thing Ronald Reagan did was to make the denial of compassion respectable. He said, you've worked hard. You've made your money. You shouldn't have to feel guilty about refusing to throw it away on people who choose to be homeless and who choose not to work. That's what he said. He said it with an elegance and a kind of benign aspect that disguised its harshness. I think we can't do anything about it. Well, why not? If we can work together now to look after the lives of the people here, I don't see why we couldn't work together afterwards to clear up the mess and help build a better world in which these things can't possibly happen. The qualities we've learned from comradeship and common suffering are not going to be wasted after this war. It's out of experience like ours that the new world will be built. That same idea of marshalling the collective force of the masses to challenge the entrenched power of wealth and business had also led the Labour Party to power in Britain after the war. But in the 80s, Labour, like the Democrats in America, lost election after election as millions who had once voted for them switched their allegiance to the Conservatives. There it is, going blue just about everywhere, sweeping the country, rural parts of Britain now gone For they are the party of yesterday, and tomorrow is ours. In the face of this, a growing number within the Labour Party became convinced that if they were ever to regain power, Labour would have to come to terms with the new individualism. One of them was an advertising executive called Philip Gould, who had been a lifelong Labour supporter. Gould believed that Labour's leadership had become corrupted by the same patrician arrogance that dominated all Britain's institutions. They denigrated and disapproved of the new aspirations of working-class voters. Labour stopped listening to these people. And I remember uh, the best example of this was after the election of 1983, which was the election, above all, where the people's voices just were not heard. And I had dinner with a leading uh, Labour Party figure who'd been involved in the defeat, heavily involved in, involved in the defeat, and his wife said, 
God, these working class people, these working class people, they just, you know, we give them education, we give them chances in life, what do they do? They read the sun and they just don't vote for us. And there was such a gap between these people just trying to make lies for themselves, better lies for themselves, and the kind of elitism of the Labour Party that was just such a chasm that, 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 that had to be filled. Gould became part of a small group of modernisers centred around Peter Mandelson. Their aim was to reconnect Labour with the lost voters. To do this, Gould turned to the technique he knew well from his work in advertising, the focus group. Gould commissioned focus groups in suburban areas across the country with small groups of voters who had switched to Mrs Thatcher. People were encouraged not to talk rationally about policies, but to express their underlying feelings. And what Gould discovered was a fundamental shift in people's relationship to politics. They no longer saw themselves as part of any group, but as individuals who could demand things from politicians in return for paying taxes just as business had taught them to do as consumers. And I found that the people had become consumers. People now wanted to have, you know, politics and life on their own terms. I mean, not just in politics, but in all aspects of life too. People see themselves as they are, as autonomous, powerful individuals who are entitled to be respected, who are entitled to have the best, not just in... Um, you know, going to Tesco's or wherever, but the best in terms of health and in education too. All this was about getting the Labour Party to understand that people really, really, really had changed and the Labour Party had not, and unless the Labour Party changed, it would not win. Philip Gould now set out to try and persuade the Labour Party that they would have to make concessions to what he called the new aspirational classes. He was going to face implacable opposition. In the run-up to the 1992 election, Gould argued that the only way to win was for Labour to promise not to put up taxes. But the Shadow Chancellor, John Smith, angrily refused. Labour would stick to its fundamental policies. They would fight the election with the promise of tax increases to create a fairer society. And as the campaign began, it seemed as if Philip Gould was wrong. The traditional polls consistently showed Labour ahead despite the Conservative campaign message that a Labour government would put up taxes. Even the Conservatives' oldest allies in the press became convinced that by harping on about tax, the Conservatives were cutting their own throats. So the worry about the Tories must be that they're not, at the moment, conveying a sense of being in control. And unless they can do better from that, I think they're going to lose. Is the other thing is that they still say that they are going to go on and on with this one single message of tax. And I think I mean, part of the difficulty this morning was that you had a whole lot of uh, people who'd been going to the same press conference for seven days, had virtually the same message yeah. thrust at them, and are, are kind of getting bored and restless and hitting back on it. I think the media sense a big story coming yeah. in the Tories being defeated. And the Labour Party too was convinced it would win and finally return to power. It's now time to meet the men and women who will form the next government. Labour Chancellor of Exchequer, John Smith. And now, it is time, time for the next Prime Minister, Neil Kinnock.
Those running Labour's campaign believed that by modern presentation, they would attract back the voters, yet keep the old policies. But Philip Gould was convinced that Labour were going to lose. Through his focus groups, he knew that the very people who were telling the traditional pollsters they would vote Labour were in reality preparing to vote Conservative out of self-interest. But they were too embarrassed to admit it. And John Major also knew this, because his focus groups were telling him the same thing. What do you make of the poll which puts Labour five points ahead? John Major's victory in 1992 was a disaster for the Labour Party. A small group of reformers centred around Peter Mandelson and Philip Gould were convinced that the only way for the party to survive was to change its basic policies. But their ideas were rejected by John Smith, who had now become leader. Philip Gould left Britain to go to work for the campaign to elect Bill Clinton president in America. The 1992 election, during it and afterwards, people felt under great strain and really did feel demoralised and dejected. And then to go from this to the Clinton campaign, it was an extraordinary experience because here suddenly I found articulated many of the ideas that I'd had but not fully myself been able to encapsulate or to articulate. Do you want a president who will restore the middle class, reclaim the future for the middle class, and restore the American dream? Vote for Bill Clinton in New Hampshire and send a signal to the country that we are coming together. What Gould discovered was that like the Labour Party, the Democrats had also been doing focus groups with swing voters. The difference was that Bill Clinton had decided to tailor his policies to fit with these voters' desires. Above all, with their ferocious belief that they should only pay tax for things that benefited them, not for the welfare of others. I have no idea what percentage of my tax dollars go to welfare, but uh, even if it's a minuscule percentage, you know, even if it's a quarter of a per percent, you know, it's still too much for the people that are receiving these benefits that, that are basically non-productive. The Clinton team decided that to win, they had to promise tax cuts for these suburban voters. And they also used the focus groups throughout the campaign to check every appearance, speech, and policy with them for their approval. What Clinton called the forgotten middle class became central figures in a new type of reactive politics. Candidates for the presidency of the United States had been prepackaged and designed for many, many years. What was new was an attempt to use very sophisticated or pseudo-sophisticated techniques to plumb the public psychology, to find out precisely what the desires of the individuals were, and then to come up with a candidate and a platform and images and words that exactly responded to those deep desires. And this was packaging at a new level. This was polling uh, at an extreme. I'm not going to raise taxes on the middle class. And the middle class needs a break. Government is in the way. 
It's taking more of your money and giving you less in return. In the name of the hardworking Americans who make up our forgotten middle class, I proudly accept your nomination for President of the United States. Stay focused. Talk about things that matter to people. You know? It's the economy, stupid. Okay? But Clinton's campaign team, led by James Carville and George Stephanopoulos, did not believe that they were capitulating to the selfish desires of the middle classes. Tax cuts were the price they had to pay to regain power. But once in power, they would still fulfill traditional democratic policies and help the poor who had been neglected under Reagan. Above all, with the reform of health care. They would pay for the tax cuts by cutting defence spending and increasing taxes on the very rich. In this way, they believed they were forging a coalition of the new and the old voters, both of whom could be satisfied. Probably for the first time in a generation tomorrow, we're going to win. And that means that more people are going to have better jobs, people are going to pay a little less for health care, get better care, and uh, more kids are going to go to better schools. Uh, and so, thanks. So, I think what they are talking about and or trying to get across is the power struggle dynamic that was created between the destruction of the black community back in the day and its effect on the United States. Um, so around the time that the quote-unquote war on drugs was going on during the Reagan administration um, was happening, that was a war on people, specifically black and brown people living in marginalized communities. And so because these people who were living in marginalized communities could not find the type of employment and opportunities that they needed to thrive, they were punished and they were penalized for them because they made the decision to become involved with drugs, quote unquote. Uh, that's the backstory, the story that's not as widely discussed and or talked about in relationship to the situation that was happening with black and brown people back in the 60s and the 70s, around the time that the Reagan administration was around. And, um, and so after he left office, I believe that the Clinton administration and the Clinton campaign was private. They're private. They knew <laughs> they were completely aware of the fact that um, the communities of color had a sore spot that was happening, and they were looking for justice, and they wanted something better for themselves, and they deserved it. And they used that as they always do because politics is always nasty and they will always use whatever type of hand that they feel like they can in order to get a leg up for their own specific needs and or desires. So they used that as a hand to play and it worked because 
the Democrats can't the it worked the first time around because the Democrats came out and they voted for Clinton. For Clinton to turn around and create things like the three strike rule. And uh really only make the situation worse. And um what else here? Yeah. That's what that's what they're talking about. The um I guess uh, they're 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 going over the white perspective in relationship to what was happening with um the destruction and the dismantling of the the black community and the black family back around the time of the the Reagan administration and the Clinton administration. So anyway, I'm gonna get to playing this. gonna go about another 10 minutes here and i'm gonna wrap things up but uh thank you so much for listening if you decide to stick with me this far but the democrats optimism was to be short-lived in november 1992 clinton was triumphantly elected president but within weeks his administration discovered that the budget deficit was far greater than they had anticipated At a meeting in the White House in January 1993, the head of the Federal Reserve told them that the deficit was nearly $300 billion. There was no way they could borrow any more without panicking the markets and causing a crisis. The only way to pay for the proposed tax cuts would be to cut government spending, not just on defense, but on welfare. Clinton was faced with a choice between the old politics and the new he chose the old. The tax cuts were dropped, and he tried to inspire the country with the old democratic ideal of government spending to help the poor and disadvantaged. Tonight I want to talk with you about what government can do, because I believe government must do more, to put people to work now, to create a half a million jobs, jobs to rebuild our highways and airports, to renovate housing, to bring new life to rural communities and spread hope and opportunity among our nation's youth. Healthcare reform sounds like a great idea to me. Well, I know, but some of these details sure scare the heck out of me. Like what? Well, like for At the start of the Clinton administration, many of us, including, I believe, you know, President Clinton himself, reverted back to an older tradition, tried to lift the public to talk about genuine ideals uh, beyond the individual. And that reform agenda being not only universal health care and child care, dealing with the widening inequalities in our society and homelessness. Many things that many citizens, just particularly middle-income citizens, didn't want to deal with. But the suburban voters who had been promised tax cuts were not inspired by Bill Clinton's vision. They felt betrayed and wanted revenge. Their opportunity came in 1994 with the congressional elections. The Republicans, led by Newt Gingrich, promised huge tax cuts and to dismantle the welfare system. The voters who had defected to Clinton switched sides yet again, and the Republicans won both houses of Congress in a landslide. Well, I think it's a tremendous vote in favor of smaller government, lower taxes, and in a sense, a renewal of the Thatcher-Reagan tradition. And I think in that sense, it's pretty decisive. It means that the welfare state is going to be less hospitable people who are not willing to take responsibility for their own situation. 
No question about it. I think this is, today is the beginning of the end of the welfare state. For Clinton, it was a disaster. Faced with a hostile Congress, there was no way for him to get his reforms through. His personal popularity plummeted, and it seemed certain he would not be re-elected in two years' time. In desperation, and without telling his cabinet, Clinton turned for help to one of America's most ruthless political strategists, Dick Morris. What did he want you to do? Save his butt. <laughs> Clinton was in serious trouble. Uh, he had uh, lost the 94 election. He had lost control of Congress, and he hired me to come back and help save him. Uh, so he was basically asking me to perform roughly the same role as a life preserver. What if you're drowning? What Morris told Clinton was that to win re-election, he would have to transform the very nature of politics. The crucial swing voters in the suburbs now thought and behaved like consumers. The only way to win them back was to forget all ideology and instead turn politics into a form of consumer business. Clinton must try to identify their personal desires and whims and then promise to fulfill them. If he followed those consumer rules, they would follow him. I said that I felt the most important thing for him to do was to bring to the political system the same consumer rules philosophy that we, that the business community has. Because I think politics needs to be as responsive to the whims and the desires of the marketplace as business is. Uh, and should, needs to be as sensitive to the bottom line, profits or votes, as a business is. I think that all of this involves really a changed view of the voters, so that instead of treating them as targets, you treat them as owners. Instead of treating them as someone, something that you can manipulate, you treat them as something you need to learn from. And instead of feeling that you can stay in one place and you can manipulate the voters, you need to learn what they want and move yourself to accommodate it. To get inside the minds of the swing voters, Morris brought lifestyle marketing into politics for the first time. He went to one of America's most prominent market research firms called Penn and & Schur and commissioned what they called a neuropersonality poll. It was a massive survey of hundreds of thousands of voters. But the only political questions it asked were to find out whether someone was a swing voter or not. All the other questions were intimate psychological ones, designed to see whether swing voters fell into identifiable psychological types. Well, we were asking people like, um, you know, do you think you're the life of the party? Uh, do you think uh, when you when you see things that uh, you like to have a list and organize them? Uh, do you uh, <clears throat> do you typically uh, you know try to plan things ahead, or do you like to be more spontaneous? Uh, where do you like to go? What sports do you like to play? What would you do with your spouse in a romantic uh, weekend? So the part that makes me nervous is, well, not nervous, but the, the part that I find slightly alarming is the fact that a lot of the questions that he's talking about, you see them on your applications, when you're taking uh, virtual applications and whatnot, and you're online, and you're filling out those job applications. Those are a lot of the questions that they usually ask when they're talking about the personality test. Um, so that's interesting. It's very, very interesting. Um, 
going to go a little bit longer here and I'm going to wrap things up. But, uh, yeah, I, uh, I, I don't know. I, I guess I can't help but to keep that in mind in relationship to what I'm hearing when he's talking. But, um, let me continue. So we were asking people some very personal questions about their own lives to try to see where the kinds of people that were likely to change their vote also possessing of certain kinds of personality traits. And, in fact, they were. The neuropersonality poll allowed the Clinton team to segment swing voters into different lifestyle types. They were given names like pools and patios, or caps and gowns who were urban intellectuals living in university towns. From this, the team could identify ways in which they could make individuals feel more secure in their chosen lifestyles, just as business had learned to do with products. Dick Morris called it small-bore politics, tiny details of people's lives and personal anxieties, which politics had never even thought about or noticed before, but which now had become the key to winning power. It was an America that focused on day-to-day -day practical concerns. Should I wear seatbelts? Should I stop smoking? Uh, should I wear a school uniform? Uh, is my neighborhood being protected? It was a, not so much a new individualism as the social order as we had known it had broken down. So we got into people's heads, understood their psychology about lifestyle, about values, what they thought was important, what issues they wanted politicians and particularly the president to address. And these issues proved to be very, very different from what the conventional wisdom had suggested. As the election campaign began, Clinton revealed Morris's new approach to a shocked White House. All traditional policies were to be dropped. Instead, he would concentrate exclusively on policies that targeted the worries of the swing voters. V-chips would be fitted into televisions to prevent children from watching pornography. And mobile phones would be fitted into school buses to make parents feel more secure. Dick Morris also persuaded the president to spend his leisure time in the same way as particular groups of swing voters. He sent Clinton on a hunting holiday, dressed in exactly the Gore-Tex outfits a group called Big Sky Families liked. The aim was to reflect swing voters' lifestyles back to them. The liberals in Clinton's cabinet hated this approach. I would say, well, Dick, why have a campaign? This was the 1996 campaign. If all the president is going to do is offer up these little bite-sized miniature initiatives that appeal to people's uh, desires, uh, like consumers buying soap, uh, uh, V-chips that you could put in your tele televisions so you could make sure that your children did not have pornography and, and school uniforms. Uh, why talk about them? They're, they're, they're so mundane and they're so tiny. And he would say back, if we don't do this, we may not get reelected. Uh, and I would say, what's the point of getting, getting re-elected if you have no mandate to do anything when you're re-elected? And he'd say, what's the point of having a mandate if you can't get re-elected? Isn't the ultimate goal getting re-elected? <laughs> but Morris's new politics were an extraordinary success. Clinton's ratings among the swing voters began to soar. And Dick Morris, along with the marketeer Mark Penn, took effective charge of making White House policy. Mark Penn set up a huge call center in an office block in Denver. And every night, hundreds of telephone operators called swing voters 
in suburbs across the country to check with them every detail of policies that Clinton was proposing. The policy was made by a group of people manning telephones in Denver, Colorado, placing calls to voters in places like Westchester and uh, Pasadena and asking them what they wanted from their government um, and asking them very specifically about specific policies that Bill Clinton was considering. Would you be more likely to support him if he offered this particular government service or if he offered that one? Those people told them what they thought. Mark Penn transmitted that to Bill Clinton and it came out of his mouth. So essentially it was suburbanite voters. Suburban voters in the 90s were creating American domestic policy and some of its foreign policy as well. Yeah, Mark Penn was polling on questions like whether we should bomb in Bosnia, things like that. That is some insane shit. <laughs> but it's also very interesting to see this on the back end. Uh, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, that'll be it for this episode of Frequency Bay. Thanks so much for tuning in with me. You guys have a great uh, rest of your evening. If you decide to stay with me this long, then I really appreciate you for that. Um, and I'm I'm going to go ahead and lay it down for right now and i'll be back with the next episode soon so stay tuned for that uh madam butterfly out